Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. I don't even know what number this podcast is. Six? Maybe number six. Seven. Yeah, six says. Oh, we're at number seven. We are at number seven. Man, that goes fast. And thank you for all your support. We are really excited that um, you're enjoying this. And we know this because, well, math and statistics don't lie. Hidden figures. <laughs> the hidden figures of Show Your Work is they're looking good. Thank you so much for... Um, yeah, thank you so much for uh, responding. And that was a very hide-your-work way of saying that uh, we're really happy about the numbers we've been seeing. Thank you for talking about the podcast and sharing it with your friends and talking to us about what you like about it. We love it. Uh, there are unusual listeners. Thank you to my mom for uh, enjoying it, even though there's language. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Now I have to worry about whether or not your mom is listening. Um, we are having a great time. And so much so that we had a lot of trouble trying to pick out what we were going to talk about today. We are not going to talk about Hidden Figures, but you should still go see the movie if you haven't already because that's our personal crusade at this point. Go see Hidden Figures. Absolutely. Although, depending on who's listening, I was surprised for you to tell me the other day that uh, Oscar voting has actually closed for nominations. Is that true? Yeah. It closed on January 13th. And the nominations for this year's Oscars will be announced tomorrow if you're listening when this gets posted. This is Monday. Um, we are recording on Saturday, Women's March Day, by the way. Um, but um, this podcast will be posted on Monday, January 23rd, which means that tomorrow the nominations will be announced. And we're hoping that Hidden Figures will factor in. And just a quick digression what do I need to care about the fact that the nominations are like digital and different? Is it going to be not as fun? I, you know, I can't figure out my answer on this and I can't figure out why they did this. I mean, I get it. Oh, we want to be young and cool and hip and with it and social media and whatever. But the Oscar brand is not young, hip, or cool. <laughs> right? And the Oscar brand also is over and above and superior to trends. Do you know what I mean? It's this like um, ongoing, historical, traditional thing that we all kind of, I don't know, enjoy specifically at one time of year for all the old-fashioned shit it stands for. I mean, I read an article that said, now you won't be able to see your colleagues at 4 a.m. over a chafing dish of scrambled eggs. And I thought, Nobody's eating scrambled eggs, but you know, there's, yeah, there's that thing of like, if you all, everybody has to get up early, it's like summer camp. It's yeah. Fun. There's something, I mean, the, and the academy itself is big on preservation of tradition. 
Um, yeah, we know. <laughs> yes, old white men. So it was a weird, to me, yeah, I don't know if this fits in with the brand or if it's an, a necessity even for a di- like a dinosaur. Okay. All right. Well, I, yeah, I don't know how to feel about it, but uh, I'll be, I'll be interested to, to see. I, I plan to be a curmudgeon about it because I've been altogether too nice lately. So, you know, we'll see how I feel. See if they can sway me. Anyway. Anyway, as uh, I just mentioned, today when we're recording this show um, is the Women's March all across North America, but primarily in Washington. Um, And so we have dedicated our subject matter today to four women who are kind of like leading the pegs are all female-led stories. Although if I'm being honest. Working in Hollywood. I feel like most of this podcast is about women working in Hollywood because let's face it, they're the ones who have to do the work as opposed to, you know, swing through the wide open doors. Um, that's maybe less true all the time. But, uh, you know, uh, women are women are working hard. Well, I mean, the exception to those conversations is last week we talked about Johnny Depp, but I think that the lesson to be learned from what Johnny Depp has been through and how we've seen Johnny Depp's career is that could a woman have gone through that, that Johnny Depp has gone through, and essentially emerged unscathed? Not at all. Yeah. In fact, image management is an unfairly large part of the job, right? Especially for women. One of the things that people loved about your site when you started writing was that you broke down sort of the ecosystem of all the ways that the pieces feed each other, right? What the publicists do and the managers and the stars and the whatnot and the paparazzi. Yes. Who are if you believe the stars that you read, just some cockroaches who who annoy and, and perturb them. Yeah, lowest of the low, hate them all. And in reality, it's a lot more nuanced. A lot more nuanced. It's um, not just nuanced, but you could argue that they're essential to the celebrity ecosystem. We couldn't enjoy celebrities without the presence and the work <laughs> of the paparazzi And I don't think celebrities could enjoy their careers, especially in the way we're enjoying, um, we're seeing celebrities enjoy their careers now. But even going way back to the days of Elizabeth Taylor, um, who was the subject, I mean, the word paparazzi was created around photographing Elizabeth Taylor. Um, So yes, I've always argued that paparazzi and photos and having that connection visually to celebrities is an essential part of the celebrity ecosystem, but each celebrity deals with paparazzi differently. And we have this week a celebrity who, uh, you know, talked about her relationship with the, with the paparazzi and, and how it can work and how it can break down um, in, a, in a way that we're not really used to, in a way that not all celebrities do. So let's pull the veil back here. So this story is about Chrissy Teigen. Um, It's also about John Legend, but it's really about Chrissy Teigen, who with no veiling, I have to confess, I just love. I think she's being really smart about the way she uses all the tools at her disposal, Twitter and the paparazzi and this and that. And I think she's so much smarter than people give a model credit for. And so she's running circles around people. So what happened, of course, is that she tweeted. Uh, didn't even, I was about to say went to the press, but she doesn't have to go to the press. She can release these things on Twitter. 
quote, paparazzi at JFK just asked me, quote, if we evolved from monkeys, why is John Legend still around, unquote? And people wonder why celebs lose it in pics. Right. I mean, you could leave it at that. There are uh, almost 9,000 retweets. It's a powerful piece of information to put out there. Um, But of course, then people say to her, well, why didn't you yell at them? Why didn't you say this or that or whatever? And then she says, you know, she's not going to do that because when somebody said, you know, why don't you fight back? She said, no, because they live for that photo and that lawsuit, right? Then she's the crazy bitch star who's in the media being yelled at, being, you know, what an ungrateful bitch. We're just trying to make a living. We just want a picture, et cetera. So is this the side we don't know? Are, are paparazzi often this rude and this inflammatory? Because that's disgusting. I do think that we know that. I'm pretty sure at least the people who are listening to this podcast are aware that the paparazzi do provoke. They do want that photo. I'm pretty sure that, you know, the people who read our blog um, are probably cognizant of the fact that given the TMZs and all the things that we've seen over the last at least decade, um, the paparazzi are out for a money shot. And and who gives up that money shot more often than not? What I like about Chrissy's comment here is that she's not exactly complaining about the presence generally of the paparazzi. She doesn't say these people should not be able to um, take their pictures at all. What she's saying is that in taking their picture, they should behave a certain way. And there's a difference there. That's the nuance, right? Huge difference. If it's a professional relationship, be a professional. In fact, she says, I was very kind, answered cooking questions, then he came with that. Fucking disgusting. That's right. So she was like, hey, at one point, we were both doing our jobs. That's right. I was doing my job as a celebrity to provide cute little answers and to look good and to, you know, give them an image. And he was doing his job by extracting those answers from me. Until, Knowing where she's going to be that's right. getting off the planes, et cetera. That's right. So she right there is confirming the existence and the relationship that has to exist between a celebrity and the pap in order to have this ecosystem. Where it goes dark is when one person breaks the contract in terms of what we agree upon. I really do wonder, though, if Chrissy Teigen is about to evolve above these relationships. And I don't mean that in a she's too good for the paparazzi. Here's what I mean. The link on the bottom of the article that we are reading, or my version of it, uh, says, fans praise Chrissy Teigen for sharing an untouched snap of her stretch marks to Twitter. If she's sharing her stretch marks, I saw this, it's like an inside thigh shot. She doesn't really need the paparazzi to promote her anymore. So I'm wondering whether we are evolving past this, whether this is part of the extension of the brand, of the Instagram, of every sort of self-curated Snapchat thing, that these occurrences, these relationships with the paparazzi are not going to happen anymore because nobody needs them. If she can sell her own photo of her inside thigh to whoever will pay for it and people will pay, why do you need the paparazzi to get you at the airport? Well, I think that for a celebrity like Chrissy Teigen, who is very candid about the fact that, hey, 
I am a self-promoter. This is what I'm doing with my social media. Um, let's be honest, her personality through Twitter has elevated her profile, right? I mean, if she was the model that she was without this added element of social media behavior, and as you said, why you love her, it's mostly because of how you've gotten to know her through her tweets, her reactions. 100%. And I, you know, I'll take it if you think that I'm being over the top in my affection, but I don't think I am because I think she's changing the game. Well, I don't dispute that. I I appreciate the fact that she is not couching her social media activity with like, oh, it's just me wanting to share and being myself. It is 100%. This is part of the game that I'm playing. This is part of my job. There are, though, some celebrities who won't do that, who will just say, I am one thing and one thing only. Just go see me at the movie. Um and so those are the ones who need the paparazzi, who do use the paparazzi and then complain about those people infringing on their privacy. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. I also just, I'm, I guess I think we're also getting to a point where this is the game that I'm playing. There's no shame even in, oh, you're playing a self-promotion game. I think that's the, the name of the game. You're giving the people what they want. Well, fuck yeah. I feel like why is there any more shame associated But they're, with it? But yeah, there are still celebrities who don't want to remove the shame from that part of their job, right? Who for some reason think that that's beneath them. Okay, but we've talked about this on a human being level, about retweeting compliments and that kind of thing. So maybe the issue is not retweeting compliments, is not talking about the numbers that your podcast gets, but being disingenuous about it. Just pretending to drop that like, oh, look, this is just somebody who thinks I'm wonderful. Or 25 people in a row who think I'm wonderful. Right. So if you say, hey, brag alert ahead, we're going we're gonna to check out all the people who retweeted me recently, then that's okay. Is that how we feel? At least it's more transparent. I guess that that is the, the goal here. And I think that that is what has fueled a lot of how we feel about celebrities and the snark and whatnot is the lack of transparency. It's, you know, and that is why we ha- almost have become so cynical We've gotten to the point where when two people get together, our first instinct is, oh, that's not a real relationship, right? Right. It's so, we've gone from like, oh my God, X and Y are together. Wow. So excited about this couple to the trigger first reaction being bullshit, (laughs) (laughs) right? It's Drake and J-Lo. It's Selena and uh, Gomez and The Weeknd. Most snarky internet gossip readers, their first reaction was, Really? Who does this serve? Yeah, right. right. Yeah. But that's because, too, there's, um, how do I put it? Barrier crossing there. If it was Selena Gomez and, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, one of the Sprouse twins who's about to star on Riverdale. I don't know if it's Cole Holy or Dylan. fucking you would bring a Sprouse twin into this podcast. But it makes sense. Selena Gomez is an A-list star and all, or ish. But she's still on her gut level Wizards of Waverly Place. That's why a Sprouse Twin is applicable. Whereas people go, Selena Gomez in the weekend, what? Those don't match up. That's what that conversation is. So it's about crossing barriers. It's about the idea that people don't fit into tiny boxes that makes people go, really? Like nobody raises an eyebrow at, God, I don't know. Kobe Smulders and Taryn Killam. <laughs> Nobody is going, that's not real. 
And it's also, no, it's also um, their history, right? I mean, if we want to take the J-Lo and Drake example, these are two people who are best in the business at self-hype and creating narratives for themselves and exploiting every single angle. But pause right there. Why wouldn't those two people be perfect for each other? (laughs) (laughs) But and yet, most people, I would say if I could do a poll of at least the Laney Gossip readership, are like, nah, nah. Um, So, but to go back to our original point, um, many of the names that we've just cited here are people who lean in to the self-promotion aspect of the job. And yet there remains a significant population in Hollywood that doesn't want to acknowledge that they need this, that they do it. It's still undercover. It's still a little bit, you know, cloak and dagger. It's still camouflage. Right. And it's not necessary, I don't think, because I think that's going to become antiquated. And uh, I don't know. It depends on who. Like if you take a Jennifer Garner, for example, who has tried to, you know, enact legislation about photographers and paparazzi and all that. And I, you know, I get it. I'm not criticizing the endangering children's safety aspect of it. What I'm trying to say is that part of Jennifer Garner's popularity has to do with the fact, with the minivan majority and being the, quote, perfect mom, has to do with the fact that we have gotten so used to, over the last decade, seeing images of her being and fitting that image. And that image was delivered to us through the paparazzi. 100%. Absolutely. But the, the flip side of that is she doesn't control it, Right. She doesn't have an Instagram. She's not cool. She is not tweeting about how fucking annoyed she yeah. is with the other mothers at drop-off. She doesn't have that kind of relationship, and so she relies on them because she hasn't taken it into her own hands. But can't admit to relying on them and would never be able to be like, hey, a part of this reason. Like, I mean, it's not like she does hit movies, right? But a part of the reason, I mean, she did that miracle, like there was that no, Christian no, theme no, movie. No, yes. no, right. no, Okay, I'm not going to mention, but… Um, part of that appeal and part of her success as a celebrity comes from the things that she does off a movie set and off a TV set. That's it right. is the, the, you know, giving us the real her, but the delivery service is through the pops. She would never say that in a fucking interview. She'd never go on Twitter. Well, she doesn't have a Twitter. And like acknowledge that this relationship and this contract between celebrity and paparazzi exists. All I'm saying, I hear you, I agree that she would never, but I'm saying that is an antiquated point of view and having a much… Hers, you mean? Hers. Yeah. Having a much more take-it-or-leave-it relationship with the paparazzi is, as per Chrissy Teigen, who is going to wait a long time before she gives a another paparazzo a decent, polite answer, because she doesn't need to, mm-hmm. you're listening, right, Chrissy? Um, is going to only benefit her. There are only upsides. Incidentally, before we move on, it's Cole Sprouse who's in Riverdale, which I strongly suspect you're going to be lusting over in two weeks' time. Me. Yes, Specifically you. me. You like teen hot boys <laughs> on television. I know this. <laughs> um, I guess one last note to this in terms of the paparazzi celebrity relationship. I have found it very interesting to watch how Justin Bieber is trying to adjust or has been adjusting because… We've seen him either be quite truculent with the paparazzi 
Um, there have been skirmishes. The paparazzi have taken terrible photos of him, which we've memed, like the baby shot, you know, like his bodyguard lifting him out of the SUV. And yet, lately, I feel like over the last few months, I've seen him walking out of clubs or walking down the street, talking to the paparazzi, but lecturing them. Hey, hey, you know, like, uh, don't, uh, don't stand there like that. And, um, you know, uh, you could talk to me like a real person. We could have a conversation. Stop yelling at me. Oh, sure. Sure, <laughs> Justin. Thank you for changing the game of paparazziism. Of course. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and I've seen, I just find that sometimes he doesn't speak and he doesn't engage, but there have been times where I have seen him walking around almost yeah, he is the teacher. He is the he, he is almost trying to educate them. And of course, the reason why he remains fascinating is because we're watching him evolve as a celebrity. Well, that's your word. I don't know. Like <laughs> I I or believe, not. <laughs> you know, I guess it's like when uh every kid moves into puberty and suddenly they're lecturing their parents about cruelty to animals yeah. and like, you know, human rights. Now, how can you work for such a terrible company, mom and dad? Yeah. And mom and dad bite their tongue to say to buy you a house and food. Um, I, sure, sure. Justin Bieber is going to solve the morality of the paparazzi any minute now. <laughs> um, are, moving on, though, I mean, when we talk about that Hollywood, um, I guess the Hollywood process the codes, the rules, someone who may be entering it now or just entering it is someone I did not think that I would be so interested in. But over the last few months, this person who I frankly have a love-hate relationship with, and I think that's part of the appeal, is one Megyn Kelly. So I, um, I read an article about Megyn Kelly this week in Vanity Fair, and it was about how much she's going to be paid now that uh, she's joining NBC. Somewhere in the million of like $15 million a year. Right. So can we lay the groundwork in case there are people, because as incredible as it is, um, uh, Fox News is not readily available in Canada. And there are people who may not have seen Megyn Kelly day to day, you know, working on Fox News for the last, I don't know how many years. Oh, I, 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 don't, I, know, I don't know either, but I think that most people's, I mean, I feel like those of us who, who don't watch Fox News, our introduction perhaps to Megyn Kelly would have been Jon Stewart. Sure. sure. Daily Show, right? So, I mean, I can tell you I've never watched Megyn Kelly's show. I've only watched Megyn Kelly on The Daily Show right. with Jon Stewart. But that almost begins to explain the whole thing. Jon Stewart brings people on who, sure, he'll argue with, who he would fight with, but who are stars. You know, Bill well, O'Reilly yeah. is a punk, dick, old guy, but he's kind of a star. He's got a thing. Sure. And that, and Megyn Kelly has that star factor. Well, yeah, and it is getting bigger and bigger. So the article I talked about in Vanity Fair was about Megyn Kelly's paycheck, but the description was about Megyn Kelly, the star. So it talked about Megyn Kelly in Hollywood on Golden Globe weekend. There was a huge party the night before, I believe, at Ron Myers. Ron Meyer is the chairman or the big dude at NBC Universal, and he is the father of Jennifer Meyer, the estranged wife of Tobey Maguire. Okay? Like, everybody, that is the all the connections. Very powerful man. 
I would like them not to rhyme so much. <laughs> so apparently, and there were mega stars at Ron Meyer's party, like big, big names who on their own are like, hey, I'm a big name and heads should turn whenever I walk in the room. But the way this Vanity Fair article was written was that all of these people, their heads turned when Megyn Kelly entered the mansion or whatever, the estate, surrounded by, flanked by bodyguards. Now, I'm reading this and my visual is like, holy shit, Megyn Kelly just fucking walked into a party like the biggest cheese. Now, there's another interesting point about that, which is you said, oh, uh, the estate. And it's interesting because the party was a little bit out of town. It's not like she was at something else and just decided to swing by. It was about 45 minutes to an hour out of town. Malibu. So it's a planned, uh, it's a planned activity to get there. It's a planned maneuver to bring your team with you, um, which is really impressive to me. So I feel like she, you know, she was making an announcement. I'm here. That was, yes. the, that was the point. An entrance. I mean, and an entrance in a room. Let me just name some of these names. Lorne Michaels, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Oprah Winfrey, Les Moonves, Chris Martin, Barbara Streisand. And the way, again, the, that Vanity Fair sources are reporting this back to Vanity Fair is that she caused a stir in that room. Chris Martin? You listed Chris Martin with your A-list? <laughs> It was just this list, this Vanity Fair list, and I've just re been reading off all of it. Anyway, so um, that, to me, when I'm reading this, I was like, oh my God, we have to talk about this. Megyn Kelly is going Hollywood. What is this going to look like? Now, remember, this is a woman who, um, you know, is all about how Christmas has been taken over by non-Christians or, you know, Santa Claus is a white guy. Um has not always been pro-feminism, even though her behavior over the last year is all feminist. So let's lay it out for people. Megyn Kelly was uh, the host of one of the debates, and when Donald Trump, the president of the United States, did not like the way that she was talking, he uh, referred to her having blood coming out of her eyes, out of her ears, out of her whatever... That was almost the beginning of the Megyn Kelly feminist crusade. She then uh, pushed back against her uh, or contributed to the, the allegations uh, of uh, sexual harassment and or abuse by her then Fox News boss. Roger Ailes. That's right. Yeah. And so all of this surmounting in her getting this job offer and moving to NBC. That's right. And uh, to your point about the paycheck, the news in this Vanity Fair article says that she was paid $15 million to go to NBC and left $25 million on, on the, the table, table which at is, Fox. That's right. So basically, uh, the numbers are a little inexact, but basically saying that she would have been paid $10 million more to stay than to go. So. So this is the work. Now right? it's interesting. This is the career management. So Megyn Kelly… Again, let's, let's be very clear about this. Left $10 million on the table to get paid less at NBC. But at NBC, in this article in Vanity Fair, the headline is, Is Megyn Kelly the next Matt Lauer? So they're trying to 
transition her and use all NBC platforms to turn Megyn Kelly into a face of the network. So here's why. So I read the amazing, delicious, juicy book, Top of the Morning, over the holidays, which I can't remember if you've read it or not. I haven't read it. It is so good. It is about the story of the ouster of Anne Curry. Remember that? You and I kind of bantered about it at the time and how that went down and who partners with Matt Lauer and what was happening at Good Morning America at the time in, in competition. And what this Vanity Fair article points out is that if you are going to pay somebody $15 million at NBC and they're not a news anchor, Megyn Kelly has never been, uh, you know, she's not, um, gosh, I don't know. Tom Brokaw. Uh, she's not Tom Brokaw. She's not uh, uh, Diane Sawyer. Or any of these. But of- might be trying to be but they're not heading her that way. That's where the argument comes in, is that she's much more of a personality than she is a news reader. She is a commentator, as per your comments about Santa Claus and, you know, Christmas and things. Yeah. She's an opinion person much more than she is uh, an international correspondent. She's not Christian Amanpour. So if you're paying somebody $15 million to stay at your network, what is the biggest highest profile place to put her. The Today Show. The Today Show. And if you read Top of the Morning, which I should be getting royalties on because I'm pimping it so much, <laughs> it explains in depth the fight for number one between the Today Show and… Good Morning uh, America. Which they had something like a… It was something like a five-year streak at being at number one. It was ridiculous before it was broken, and now it's a back and forth, and they try well, to get no, it Well, no, the Today Show had a decades-long streak at number one. Then Good Morning America was making a surge, and it was during that Ann Curry time, and then took over number one. But most recently, the Today Show has taken back number one. I mean, I'm talking recent, though, like over the last six months. That's right. But yeah. if you're thinking long-term… If you are the head of NBC and you're thinking long-term, you need eyeballs. This person, this controversial person, this good-looking ice queen, what's she going to say person could deliver those eyeballs. Um, And it's a really interesting choice because I never watch morning TV, but I will watch. I will care. I will be interested in what's happening. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I mean, just to put it out there, NBC is currently denying that all the people who are on the Today Show right now are in danger, like the Savannah Guthrie's and whoever. Um, They're claiming that there are no plans for Megyn Kelly to usurp anybody. Uh, But, oh, and I please, dot, 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 everybody, this is why the speculation is happening. First of all, dot, dot, dot. Second of all, I believe it um, because you don't have to put her in right away. All you have to do is own her. Yeah. They paid for her. They can pay her $15 million to sit on the bench if they want and wait and wait and insinuate and move. And the moves on what looks like fun, family-friendly morning television are particularly attractive. But all this to say, will we like her? Will all these moves of Megyn Kelly's result in people who enjoy her or hate watch her? Or what are we setting ourselves up for? I don't know. I I actually don't know. Like… There are two things here. Overall, whether or not Megyn Kelly is going to land, and by land, I mean find success with that kind of audience. Like the Fox News audience is a thing. The NBC audience may have, in that Venn diagram, 
some things in common with the Fox News audience, but there's another part of the NBC audience that is not Fox at all. That's right. Not NBC at all, or sorry, not Fox News at all. It's an entirely different perspective. So that's number one. Number two, the conventional wisdom on morning TV is that you don't want nastiness or you don't want to be provoked, that you don't want to have to think too hard. In fact, uh, again, with this book, my new Bible, uh, the rift between Ann Curry and Matt Lauer, which was so visible on television, is largely the reason that they had a problem. Uh, or it's certainly, it was yes. the biggest reason why there was a problem. Because viewers were uncomfortable. They sensed the tension. They, and when you right. get up in the morning, conventionally, what people wanted to see is smiley faces, the cup of coffee in the hand. You know, even if it was a hard topic to discuss, everybody was like reaching out from the television to give you a hug. That's typically how morning TV should feel. Now, Megyn Kelly is not a hugger. No. Like, that's not her public image. She is not a Katie Couric, for example. That's right. And so when you have this woman who we're beginning to build our fascination for, and she's not a hugger, she's prickly. But maybe that's super amazing forward thinking. Maybe they will get me watching morning TV because I want to see what she's going to do. And because, let's just say it, let's hear it for fucking prickly women. There's a place for them maybe on TV. There's a place for not always having to placate your co-host, your faux husband, your, hi Matt Lauer, call me, um, <laughs> to, you know, look like you are the sweet one. Maybe there's room for this. Maybe the people at NBC are much more, uh, yeah, creative and forward thinking than I had previously given them credit for. I, I wonder, like, I'm really excited to watch this unfold this Megyn Kelly NBC narrative. And so shockingly to me, I mean, if you had said to me two years ago, are you interested in following the career of Megyn Kelly, Megyn with a Y, I would be, <laughs> I would be like, mm, what are you talking about? And yet here she comes, this complicated, controversial woman who makes me uncomfortable with some of her views. And yet I think it's still okay for me to say, I am, I am actually extremely fascinated by her. Absolutely. And I also wonder whether some of those views will fall away and be under the guise of, well, those were the dressing I had to wear at that job. Well, those were, you know, what I had to do to get ahead, right? We're now in an era where people say all kinds of things and it doesn't necessarily, it's not supposed to reflect who they are, except when it is. So I wonder whether she will say, yeah, no, that's not actually me. That was just a the Fox News cartoon boobs and dress version of me. Stand by. Stand by. And maybe stand by for an essay later on, if we can think this through. Is there then something to research in this next question? Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Are Megyn Kelly and Ivanka Trump comparable? 
I, that's a bigger question, and I look forward to having the emotional fortitude to find the answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have it today. Right. You can see where I'm, I'm making those, I'm drawing those veins. I know what you're talking about. I also wonder if it's just, you know, reasonable facsimiles of another. Like, how much does just having a photocopy of yourself uh, or of a person who we're supposed to aspire to, uh, you know, put an image in our heads. Yeah. To be continued, but speaking of photocopies, uh, where we're talking about news and news networks and so forth, uh, we both had a reaction to an article this week about the new show, the new sitcom, NBC sitcom, I should say, Great News. So during the last two weeks, What's been happening is the TCAs, which is the Television Critics Association. And it happens twice a year, once in the summer and once in the winter. This is the winter TCAs. They happen in Pasadena. It's a press tour. So they invite every TV writer, TV critic to come and screen shows, talk to the stars and showrunners and whatnot. Most of the quotes that you hear or have heard about your shows come from this tour One of the reasons that Shonda Rhimes is the massive star that she is today, in addition to making excellent television, is she always does a bang-up job at the TCAs. She lands really good quotes. She bests the critics, but in a way that they love. So it's a kind of a fun event. Fun story, or maybe not, but I've done the TCAs once for eTalk. And my experience at the TCAs has been that generally you do get more access to the showrunners, to the stars, there seems to be a willingness in that TCA environment to uh, talk more and to really give you a little bit more time over and above your standard junket. You know, a standard movie or TV junket, everybody's like fucking, you know, rolled into that room for four-minute stretches or five-minute stretches. At the TCA, it felt, at least to me, like it was a little bit more breathable. Well, that's really interesting because the, uh, without getting too inside, or maybe we want to, the TCA, the audience are writers by definition, right? That's right. The audience is a bunch of writers who are then going to go back to the Pasadena Journal Mm -hmm. or the, you know, the Sunbee of uh, Idaho or whatnot and write a relatively thoughtful critical analysis of all these shows. And it's one of these relationships that is mutually symbiotic because they get the access and also get weeks and weeks of content. Yeah. And so, yeah, they get access to stars and the stars get to promote and the showrunners get to push what they want. By contrast, the junket relationship, as you put it, where, uh, you know, on-air personalities or sometimes reporters or whatnot go and speak directly to the stars – they're only three-minute or five-minute interviews, so they just have to be generic. So they get that piece out to the people who are watching on the news, uh, but also making dinner. You know, those yeah. clips air in in such a generic way with a beat underneath. Yeah. And so that speaks to a little bit of the difference. Now, tell me if you agree with this. I feel that a show can be made or broken at TCA. Um, I have seen reaction because what happens at the TCA also is that um, episodes and pilots are screened. That's right. Um, full pilots. And then immediately the writers who have been watching TV for years, 
who are watching other TV and comparing it um, are talking amongst each other. And if they hate it, oh my God, they will say it. In those panel discussions that you see, I mean, everybody out there, if you're listening to this, you've seen those pictures where the cast and the showrunners sit on a stage and the writers are in the audience asking the questions and you will hear it. When we say the writers, the journalists, not the writers of the shows. That's right. So yeah, I do believe it can be made or broken. Uh, You know, uh, even worse than a terrible review, of course, is no review or a lukewarm eh. Um, Absolutely. You want people to be talking about it and you want people to care more than you want them to be nice or to be praiseworthy uh, and to get up in arms and to scream. And so, yeah, for sure, it can be made and broken. Now, just to sort of give people that insight, if we want to go sort of inside baseball, that TCA that I was at was the scandal TCA right at the beginning. And the buzz from those journalists and from those TV critics was massive. I remember being like in the backstage holding area and yeah, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of hype. So I, it was very interesting for me to witness that. And then there were a couple of shows that they absolutely ravaged. I mean, it was savage, the reaction to that. That's because uh, if you are somebody who listens to us because you like writing or cares about TV or TV writing, if you watch the Scandal pilot, that holds up. A pilot should be not just a setup, it should also be a roller coaster ride, and that pilot is as good today as it was then. If you go back and watch pilots from 10, 20, 30 years ago, some are amazing, mm-hmm. some are only okay, but the ones that hold up are the shows that we still talk about yeah. today. Go watch the X-Files pilot and tell me if I'm wrong. Anyway, yeah, let's get back to this year's TCAs. Well, I had a Veronica Mars anecdote <gasps> there, but no, now that you're making me move on, I'm not going to share it with you. I thought perhaps <laughs> in the interest of trying to be Did you hear doing a gasp there? <laughs> Guys, I try. I try to do this thing that we're doing where I try to keep things going and like, you know, oh, maybe it's my turn to pick up the transition. Maybe I should do that. Apparently, I missed the Veronica Mars. Let's hold the phone. Stop. Please give us your Veronica Mars transition. At that TCA's is when I started watching Veronica Mars and texting you through the episodes. Now, do you remember? Oh, absolutely. I do. So I was in my hotel room in Pasadena and either I couldn't sleep or I was homesick or something. And I was like, well, I'll just download these episodes onto my iPad, started watching them. And like within 10 minutes, I was like, what the fuck is this show? Oh my God, it's amazing. And that started my Veronica Mars obsession, which you had been harassing me to begin. That's right. Because before that, you were like, I don't want to watch a high school show with a blonde girl. I don't want to watch a show with Kristen Bell. I don't want to watch this show. And yes, within 10 minutes, I believe the first text was, what is this show, Duanna? Why didn't you tell me about this show, Duanna? Right. So anyway, that is, I will always associate the TCAs with Veronica Mars and you. And that was the aside. We can move on from the tangent and get back to what happened at the TCAs just this week where um, a show called Great News was screened for journalists. And this show is uh, brought to you by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, who you previously know from 30 Rock. That's right. Robert Carlock has been her writing partner for a long time. They're not like an official 
partnership like they only write together, but they write TV together almost every time. Partly, not only, but partly because when you are Tina Fey and you're the head writer but also starring in things, you need somebody to continue to be the head writer when you are in makeup and on set and that kind of thing. Does he do Kimmy Schmidt with her too? Yes, he does. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the show is great news, which is why we segued and then tangented and came back from Megyn Kelly. So the show is great news and is essentially a newscast, right? Yeah, and I think it's supposed to feel Fox-esque. Uh, you know, maybe not that sensational, but I think it's supposed to be a cable news station is the euphemism there, right? And there are lots of people here that we know from previous projects with all these people. Uh, uh, Tracy Wigfield, uh, I believe, has written on 30 Rock and the Mindy Project. Stand by, and I will clarify. Horatio Sands is involved. John Michael Higgins and Nicole Richie star as the anchors. Right. And so what really bit the two of us when we were reading the Entertainment Weekly article about this show is specifically how Nicole Richie's role seems to have been written. Um, now, as Duanna, you just said, Nicole Richie and John Michael Higgins, they play the co-anchors. And so I'm just going to read to you in this article how their characters are described. Their characters are called Chuck and Portia, quote, who sit on the opposite side of the generational gap and reflect that age discrepancy in their judgment of, as Carlock says, things that matter. Quote, Portia wants to share what she considers actual news, says Nicole Ritchie. Chuck wants to report on actual news that's going on in the world. And Portia really wants to report about Snapchat and lipstick and anything really important to her. So the young female anchor of this news partnership wants to talk on the news about Snapchat, lipstick, and anything really important to her, accompanied by a photo from set, by the way, of them at their anchor table, and she's taking selfies, and he's pointing and looking serious and engaged and serious about the news. Is that so e- fucking easy and obvious? Yeah, it's it's disappointing. You know, I have to point out that when I read this article first, which is in Entertainment Weekly, I did not note the first time that that was Nicole Richie's description of the character, as opposed to, say, a writer's description. But it's that's almost worse, because that means that that is the character that she's read on the page, that she's playing. And, you know... It's just not that easy, or it is that easy. It's too easy to write a character who is only concerned about Snapchat and lipstick and to coincidentally have that person be played by a young blonde female. It's boring. It's annoying and boring and frustrating, particularly when we're talking about the news and the idea that only old white men can seriously deliver the serious news. Like, did we not do this with the newsroom? Did we not get through this with fucking Sorkin trying to tell us that only old white men know how to interpret the news. Fucking Sorkin. And the rest of us are doing it wrong. It's frustrating. It's upsetting, for sure. At the same time, stereotypes work on television. Types work on television. Having tropes, having ideas work on television. If you were a huge 30 Rock fan, at the beginning of the show, Tracy's a self-absorbed idiot. Jenna is a self-absorbed idiot. Liz is a grumpy, schlubby writer, and Jack is a mercenary. That's who they are. Those are the real sort of 
paper doll sketches. And then they become more nuanced. Obviously, that's not who they were in the end, but those are the paper dolls that you start playing with. And those work for a reason because people tune in for a half hour and go, who am I watching? Oh, okay. An idiot, a schlub, and a mercenary. Got it. So I understand why, and yet I wish it weren't the case. I really think it would have been just as easy to have, you know, the the older, more serious character played by Gina Davis and the the young sort of vain idiot played by Ross from E's Red Carpet. I don't know. Um, I wish that it was different. I wish that it was a little more nuanced and subtle. It's It, it disappointed me a little bit to well, read it. Well, it's really, to me, I agree with you on both sides of that, like how we what you're, we want to give that a chance to see where it goes. And yet I also wonder whether or not they're leaning into a problem with that industry where the older newsman can age, but his female partner is almost never allowed to, right? You never see a Gina Davis as the senior anchor and a, like, um, Zac Efron, um, at a news desk. Not in that pairing. No. We have seen older women on their own. On their own, but never with a man. No. I think about, you know, Barbara Walters, but she was paired with Hugh Downs in the end, you know, or, uh, and like John Stossel sitting at the side. Am I the only one who's watched <laughs> 2020 religiously with their parents growing up? Uh, or, you know, I think about, yeah, Diane Sawyer, but she was a solo anchor. We just talked about Megyn Kelly, who is a, was a young, beautiful side dish, pardon the pun, to some old white dudes on Fox News for a long time. So you're absolutely right. This could be a real satire of who gets hired at those places and yeah. why they get hired. But it doesn't necessarily excite us. Or does it? Do you watch this and go, well, now I want to see what happens? Do you read this article and go, let's see where this goes? I, I'm always going to be interested in Tina Fey. Of course. I find Nicole Richie quite interesting. Yeah. I quite, yeah. I quite, um, I'm quite intrigued by her. I want to know if Nicole Richie can act. I want to know where Nicole Richie's multitudes are. When's the last time we saw Nicole Richie act? I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen Nicole Richie act. I can't, I can't come, I can't, I don't have anything off the top of my head. Okay. And so. Yeah, I, and I feel like right now, Nicole Richie's role on this show seems to be um, kind of tapping into what we all think we know of Nicole Richie anyway. Reality TV show, fashion, looks, parties you know, Instagram, whatever. But you know, um, as you said, you'll always be interested in something Tina Fey does. And Tina Fey can do whatever she wants. Tina Fey is successful enough to do whatever the fuck she wants. And so I'd like to point out, uh, to bring it all back to Veronica Mars, that it's not like this is a must-do. Uh, nobody was forcing anybody to hire Nicole Richie. Early on in Veronica Mars's run, there is a guest spot by Paris Hilton. And the understanding is that the network really wanted the show to bring in somebody popular in order to kind of assure kids that this was a cool kind of show to watch. That was 
many years ago and a different network in a different time, but nobody tells Tina Fey what to do or who to hire, which means that they would have wanted Nicole Richie because she was right for the role. So that's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, I, but I don't know. I'm, I mean, what, this is March? March 7th, the show premieres. So how many episodes are we giving it? Or are we? Oh, well, you know, let's see. Like, a, a, a half hour is much easier to consume than an hour. So I, maybe three or four. We'll see if it holds our interest. I mean, that's a funny question because when we get home and sit home at night and we're exhausted and we're like, ah, what are we going to watch? And sometimes we only have the energy for a half hour. There often aren't enough of them that are available and easy to consume like this. So I can see this becoming a favorite for one of those reasons. I will say, though, that I think I'm probably going to be more into Riverdale. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there has been no time cut. It has been 40 minutes since we began this podcast, and she has done a 180. Oh, I, I would like Riverdale? Me? Cut to... I think I'm going to be really into Riverdale. Not for that twin guy, but for the lead guy. I like that lead boy. Okay. Um, All right. Kathleen wrote about him. Anyway, um, but that's a nice segue because those are young actors. Oh, I see. I see. That was a nice (laughs) segue and not just some teen lust. (laughs) Those are young actors and um, we want to get a little chat going about young actors um, specifically because... um, a news item about, or just an item of interest about Ariel Winter of uh, Modern Family came up this week. So Ariel Winter, Modern Family, basically has grown up on TV. And uh, you drew my attention to an article about Ariel Winter saying how Sofia Vergara kind of fairy godmothered her through her, what she describes as an awkward body face. Right? Okay. Let's back this up. Uh, Ariel Winter, Modern Family, i.e. who cares, right? Like this show has been on forever. Everybody's super rich. If you watch the show, if you pay attention, you might know that Ariel Winter is the middle daughter. She plays Alex and has been well known for wearing these extremely booby dresses. And then she gets called out in the media for wearing such booby dresses And then she's like, don't body shame me. And then she talks about how she's getting a breast reduction and so on and so forth. And the article that I sent you involves her posing and showing off her breast reduction scars, except not really. You can't see them at all. uh, Accompanied by this article. Oh, Sofia Vergara, who of course is also large of chest, showed me how to dress. And it was such a nice thing. And it was a bonding thing. Okay. First of all, I don't doubt the veracity of any of this for a minute because no matter how thin you are, uh, big breasts are a problem for fashion people to dress. You could be, and these exist, you know, these sort of six-foot Barbie dolls who weigh 120 pounds but have double D breasts. Uh, there are designers who sort of look askance at this unfortunate situation. We know this happens. So I don't doubt the veracity of this, and I don't doubt that Sofia Vergara was helpful to Ariel Winter. All this said, is this news? Do we care? Why are we hearing about this? Why was it interesting to you? Well, I'll tell you that I only started paying attention to Ariel Winter after a conversation I had with you. We were in LA. I think it was like 
Oscar weekend or we were in LA for something. And it was during the time, a couple years ago, I think, maybe a little bit more, when she was trying to get away from her mother. Right. She was looking for uh, emancipation. And what that means, it's a term that gets thrown around in acting and Hollywood a lot. The legal term means that a child is a legal adult before they're legally 18 and can make legal decisions for themselves. Now, it happens for a couple of reasons. The the surface top-level reason is that if you are emancipated, you can declare yourself an adult and you can work longer hours even if you are under 16. Under 16-year-old kids are severely curtailed and they have to work only a certain number of hours a day and three of those hours have to be school and it's really, uh, it's restrictive. There are, it's one of the reasons why shows don't cast 14-year-olds to play 14 very often because it can be really restrictive on on your time. If you are a 14-year-old who gets emancipated, then you can work adult hours because you're legally an adult. However, in Ariel Winter's case, I believe she was trying to extract herself from a situation that was abusive, that was financially demanding, i.e. her mother, like so many mothers in Hollywood, was a momager, right? So she was taking a commission from the pay. She was dictating the work terms of her daughter, not only as a parent, but as a professional. And so that's what she was trying to do. And in that conversation that we had, I think you were like, who cares? Why is this happening? What's with the whining? Why do we, why? Right? Yeah, it was, we were having that conversation, but in particular, I was like, wow, like, holy shit, this, this is ugly. You know, she's like suing her mother. It is, it was for a while, it had become a really ugly situation all over TMZ where she was leveling these accusations. She, you know, it seemed real dark and I always remember that that was when you kind of pulled back for me what it looks like when the child is the breadwinner, where the family and the family being able to eat depends on like essentially a 10-year-old. Yeah. What I remember reading about in that particular family is that uh, the mother or the parents, I don't know, but uh, both of Ariel Winter's older siblings, who are grown adults, uh, had tried to be child actors also, that this was something that was a real mission. And if this is your mission, it means that you are in LA with your child. You may have moved away from your hometown if you are trying to make this happen, because you kind of can't make it happen unless you live in LA. And you are driving your kid around to auditions. It's a full-time job. You know, people like to talk about how kid auditions only happen from like 3.30 to 6.30 after school. But if auditions are an hour away, which they always are, uh, that means you're picking your kid up at 2.30 from school and driving them across Kingdom Come every single day for every single audition, which means they're leaving school early. And by the way, what job do you have? that you are able to leave every day. Maybe you don't have. That's on top of all the lessons, all the haircuts, all the everything else that is important to do. And so your whole life as an adult becomes wrapped up in your kid, but not like all parents' lives are wrapped up in their kids, but you become really invested in your kid's success, in their making money. Uh, And we hear this story over and over and over again. You know, 
I give a slight pass to kids whose families have lived in Southern California for years. There's less riding on it. You can go home at the end of the night and have dinner with mom and dad and your brother who's at hockey or whatever. Do California kids play hockey? Stand by. Let's find out. <laughs> um, the more common occurrence, though, is that there's one parent and one kid living in a crappy apartment in a rental in L.A., and they're living often in a rental apartment complex with all the other child stars, often who are going out for the same auditions as you are, and they're doing this every day, desperately hoping that they will become Lizzie McGuire or Alex on Modern Family or whoever else you want to name. And it's a tough life, man. This is why I have such a problem with Millie Bobby Brown because Millie Bobby Brown talked about a time when she wasn't booking work. Not that she wasn't getting that part that she really wanted or that she wasn't sure if she was a good enough actress, but I wasn't getting work. That is, And she's a, like 12. Yeah, she's 13 now. That was a quote that happened before Stranger Things. So that was pre-12 years old. And she's talking about it like, well, I wasn't making enough money. Uh, she also said about her family's uh, commuting from London, England, that, and I quote, there were tears, tears, tears. It's a terrible way to have a kid live. And to feel like this thing that they want to do that's kind of fun is enormous, enormous pressure. So I feel like, yeah, child actors are a double-edged sword to begin with. And when they are somebody where it's really important to the whole family, where they're the one who's paying the mortgage, where they're, let's say, $10,000, dollars $15,000 an episode in a 22-episode season, is partly going to pay their momager's salary. It's a really weird power imbalance. And as per Ariel Winter now, today, maybe they don't learn a lot of boundaries and we hear every little thing about them as per uh, the post-breast reduction scar photos in uh, that we see in the media. It's an interesting way to grow up. Everything that you just said there was basically what we had talked about two or three years ago but the picture you just painted was so evocative for me at the time and is still so evocative, like imagining that car ride, you know, going from these auditions to auditions where you walk in and you see the person who might literally live down the hall look like you. And it's something, um, it's something that La La Land kind of touched on. If you've seen La La Land, you see Emma Stone going from audition to audition and you see the people around her looking exactly the same, wearing the exact same outfit, you know, white button down shirt is that particular scene. She gets coffee spilled on her. Um, and that is the life for a regular actor, an adult actor. But imagine that as a child, you know, when you're 13 and you're still dealing with forming who you are, and all it is is day after day of walking into rooms where you see, oh, that person kind of looks like me and is going to act like me. I'm not that unique after all. Oh, and they said no to me. On top Over of and over again. Over and over again. On top of which, uh, you know, Hollywood has a lot of rules in place. And one of them is the parents are usually there. And I don't know a parent, no matter how wonderful and chill who is capable of not comparing their kid sometime or other in soccer or Spanish lessons or acting, who can't be like, 
Now, did you see the way Elaine was sitting up so straight in that waiting room? Why can't you sit up straighter? That's why you didn't get the part. I'm not saying that's what happens every time, but I can see how it would happen so easily. If you're doing this every day, all the time, and you're watching people do better than you, get roles out from under you, because that's what happens, I can see how that comparison would happen. So I had a book when I was growing up and thought that I was going to be a child actor before I realized all the power is behind the camera <laughs> or the microphone. It was this great book. If you have it, please shout out to me. Please, I will buy it from you. It was called So You Want to Be a Star, and it was written by a teen beat writer. And it was a step-by-step, like, thin novel uh, type book. It was not a novel, but it was a step-by-step how-to of how to get work as a child actor in Hollywood. And it involved steps to convince your parents to move to L.A. and steps to send your headshots to agents and all the rest of it. And I remember things in it like uh, Jeremy Miller, who played Ben Seaver on Growing Pains for a Supercurrent reference, went on 350 auditions in the space of a year and didn't get a thing before he booked Growing Pains. It's a really, really tricky life. Now, I'm not under the illusion that anybody is following me or my life, but if you are, uh, you might go, well, aren't you kind of a a hypocrite? Because don't you work on shows that have kids on them? And I will say that I do, but the key difference is that there's almost nobody who is working in Canadian television uh, as a child career that is supporting a family. It's just the industry does not exist that way. And it's not that easy to do. It's not a, it's not a viable procedure to think that your child is going to make it as a star. And also the, the work here is steady, but intermittent enough that kids are spending a lot more time in regular school. Their faces tend not to be on bed sheets, Justin Bieber being the exception. Uh, and they're generally not being equipped with a staff. They are not in a position where their parents are working for them, which also makes a difference. Well, and I mean, that example exists in Hollywood too, where the Millie Bobby Browns and the Ariel Winters are not the Jaden Smiths. You no, know, absolutely. Will and Jada don't need Jaden to become a superstar to <laughs> pay exa- the mortgage. That's exactly right. Jaden Smith getting a movie role is not moving them out of the Oakwood apartments and into something more, more spacious and normal, right? If and when Ava Philippi, who we were talking about, becomes the next breakout star, nobody needs her to do well. It's not quite the same thing. You know, it's almost, you can look at generations of entertainment families and see the, the way that it can roll out. Even with uh, a Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher, that's a success because somebody wants to perform, not because somebody is pushing them desperately to succeed. And that's where the difference lies. And you and I have talked about uh, Beyonce and Solange at length. And one of the things that's amazing about that family, for example, is that they were already an upper class family economically. They were not pushing their daughters so that they would have the kind of economic success that Hollywood can provide. So. All this is interesting, it's weird, it's curious. If you have a kid or were a kid, you can sort of think about why this is or isn't a good idea. And, you know, my thing has always been, 
which I think I also inherited from that book that I read, you can do this as an adult. You can break into the business as an adult and be fine. And if you have your dreams when you are 10, you will still have them when you're 20, and that's fine. Here's the question I pose to you and to Yasik. Uh, <laughs> I know that you guys are big sports fans, and the same kind of thing applies in sports in that young people are often pushed really hard, really fast. There are parents who really want them to do this, parents who are really riding on their success. But the difference is, and it kills me, you kind of have to push a 12-year-old in hockey because otherwise it's not going to happen, right? Right, because in, a, at, like, in essence, as you say, you can't get into hockey at 20. Right. You can't become a star after your youth. No. It, it so depends on that skill building as a child. And so, you know, parents of child performers might say the same thing. They might say, we need to build these skills. We need to start building a career now uh, in order to enjoy that success as an adult. Well, and everything that you said about waiting gets so muted and buried under the one story that everybody just wants to attach to, the Emma Stone story or the whoever, like, you know, or Emma Stone's actually a great example because Emma Stone is that girl who lived in Arizona who famously built a PowerPoint presentation to present to her parents to convince them to move to L.A. so that she could start going on auditions. She must have read the same book I did. <laughs> Obviously did a better job with the presenting to your parents part of it. But that's the step-by-step. -step. And then Emma Stone went to L.A. with her mother and said it was very hard and went on audition after audition and worked at – there's also a very famous story where she talks about baking dog cookies and working at Three Dog Bakery or one of those bakeries that sells dog treats. She was and definitely then, on a reality show about the there new you Partridge go. family. There you go. And then finally booked her first big, which was I think was super bad. Which was super bad. That's right. And so now Emma Stone is possibly going to be nominated for her second Oscar. That – Her second nomination. Her second nomination for Oscar, yes. And so with Emma Stone, as I said, everything you said is, all, is always going to be counteracted by that story. It's the proof. It's the thing that you hold up. But nobody's telling the story of all the kids who don't make it, of all the kids whose parents take out a second mortgage and go to L.A. and live in uh, the Oakwoods or their car, Hillary Swank, or whomever, trying and trying and trying to make it. We only hear the success stories, not the stories where it's devastating to uh, a family and a marriage and the stability of the kid. The other side of things is you can make it as an adult. Uh, I don't know if you know what John Hamm was doing right before Mad Men, but I do because I saw him playing a five-line role in Gilmore Girls right before he got Mad Men. And it wasn't even that good, and he wasn't that good. And in fact, they talk about the character after he's gone, but without having him back on the show. Like, that's the life of an actor for a long, long time, and I'm sure he was thinking of giving up, and then Mad Men. There's nothing to say that you have to be a young person to do this, but I understand the allure at the same time. All this to say, I shouldn't be so hard on Ariel Winter, I guess. And... To go with our weekly theme, do we have to care about Ariel Winter? Or 
are we caring more about Ariel Winter with the way Ariel Winter is asking us to care about her? Yeah, I mean, it's so what we talk about now is that she has a harder road ahead in terms of, hey, Ariel Winter or other child stars who ha- have been in this situation. We could as easily be talking about her TV siblings, for example. Hey, now you have to choose projects where people are interested and maybe pass up the money that you get for certain spreads or whatever, and wait to do work that is really interesting, that is worthy of you as an actor. That's the kind of thing that people need adult advice for. And to bring it all back to the beginning, that's the kind of thing that you don't necessarily get when your parent is invested deeply in your financial success as a child more than in your growing into a real-life adult. Hope you're listening, Ariel Winter. Or maybe not. But thank you for listening. We are so thrilled that you have taken to this podcast, show your work. We're so thrilled that you care about work the same way we care about work and the work behind the work of Hollywood. We love in particular your suggestions, your comments about the work that you see going on both in behind the scenes in Hollywood and in your work that's not being reflected. Uh, We love talking about this. We're going to continue talking about this. If you were wearing a pink pussy hat this weekend, we salute you. Pink pussy. March with the pink pussy. Show your work. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.